0: I have that not so desirable trait of just plowing through everything and just wanting to do it all today. Um, The farm managers or the owners are great, like they're just great people, they've worked with me so well, we've had these meetings and they're really apt to incorporate my ideas. Mm
1: Welcome to Choosing to Farm, a podcast for first and returning generation livestock farmers and ranchers to share their stories, find connection, and provide insight into the life of farmers who didn't take the traditional path. I'm your host, Jen Colby. this is Jen thanks so much for joining us today if you are a farmer or a rancher anywhere between Maine and West Virginia who is a first generation livestock person or a person returning to a farm or a ranch after time away doing something else I would love to talk with you thanks to funding from a couple of USDA grazing lands conservation initiative grants Uh, we'll be sharing your stories over the next two years super excited about that. So please do reach out to me at choosing to farm at gmail.com or send me referrals of other people you can think of. That would be terrific too. So thanks. On today's episode, uh, Cameron Pedigo started in the rolling hills of Tennessee, watching wildlife with his dad and eventually worked his way north to upstate New York working on dairies and diversified livestock farms and today he is the farm manager of a purebred sheep farm. Here's Cameron to tell us his story.
0: My name is uh, Cameron Pedigo. I am the farm manager of Anchorage Romney's in uh, Saugerties, New York. I've been here for just a few months so this is kind of my my first farm manager position and I'm really excited about it. So just hitting the ground running.
1: Well how did you end up at that particular farm I don't know what they do. Romney's, I assume they're a sheep farm, but maybe they do other things too. But
2: how did you end up there?
0: The long answer is complicated. The short answer, the easier answer is I was at a farm. So this is here in the Hudson Valley, New York. And I've been farming here since 2018. And through a series of events, the previous farm I was at was like an upstart farm, me and a friend of mine. He had the land, I had the experience, and we tried to make it, work and it didn't we kind of run out of money like it often happens but we tried and so I was looking for a job this past winter the old farm manager here which had been here for 20 years great guy was retiring and they were looking for for someone that wanted to come and take over and I just so happened to slide right in
1: cool so so when he retired did he go away or is he still sort of available as a mentor or somebody for you to call
0: yeah, he's still available. Yeah, I, I bug him all the time. I'm like, how many bales of hay did you have last year? Because, like, my calculations say one thing, but your notes say something different. And uh, he helped with shearing. They share twice a year. I'm used to only sharing once, or I had hair sheep before. Yep. So, all of those kind of nuanced things. He's a great guy. He's a super good resource. Our farming methodology is quite different, but he's an invaluable resource for me.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. If we go further back, how did you yeah. how did you
1: get into agriculture did you grow up in doing any of this stuff or no
0: no not really so i grew up in tennessee i'm originally from tennessee about an mm-hmm. hour north of nashville it's called it's a small town called lafette should be pronounced lafayette but us southerners never pronounce anything properly and yeah i i kind of grew up poor i lived in projects and trailer parks as a young kid yeah so um my dad was a hunter and a fisherman so we would go hunting and fishing and he had uh, land leases on big 300 acre farms down there, kind of in the rolling Hills of Tennessee. And I would become obsessed with wanting to be in the woods. Like I just, I needed, I had a lot of stressors. And if I was out there, I could just be out there in nature with my thoughts. And one of the farms that he had leased was a beef farm. And, you know, they had, I don't know, red, black Angus, maybe some Herefords, but of the 300 acres maybe 20 acres was pasture the rest mm. was just
3: woods
0: oh wow so i'd sit in the in the deer stand and i would just watch these cattle you know if they were where i was cuz it was just open continuous grazing and they would just eat everything they would eat the plants they would eat trees that had fell down and i just i would just become obsessed i would watch them i'd watch the deer how they would interact with the with the cows and and turkeys and you know other animals so I've always been a keen observer of nature. And so that started young. So that's kind of like the foundation. I, I wouldn't realize that that's what laid the foundation, except for like 20 years later. Yeah. And my mom had remarried and her husband lived and worked on a family dairy farm in fought Alabama. So I lived there with them for a little over a year, around a year. I don't remember. I was young. And that's really whenever I, I really started liking farming. The dairy farm was beautiful. So i shut down now, but it was a beautiful dairy farm. I don't know how many acres. And getting to see that that side of the farm, really getting to see like hay making, uh, they fed grain. I don't feed, you know I, I prefer not to feed grain, but they you know how that worked and into the parlor milking system. So then that ended. So then I grew up, and I, I actually, I was in the military. So after I mm-hmm. graduated high school, I was in the Navy. I told you this is a long, meandering answer.
2: It's great. It's perfect.
0: Yeah. So then in the Navy, I had to get out of my small town. There was really nothing there for me. I didn't know what I wanted in my life. And I get out to San Diego and everything's different. The scenery is different. The people are different. The food is different. Like everything's really, really different. So I started going to farmer's markets because I wanted to know, like, what do people do? Like, what do people eat out here? Like, I know you can have seafood, but like, what else? And so it's my exploratory nature, like to want to know what's going on. And then I, I started talking to farmers. They're like, oh, we do this type of farming. I'm like, what? Isn't there just one type of farming? You put cows out in a lot, you feed them grain, and then you kill them later. They're like, oh no, we do rotationally grazing. I was like, what are you talking about? This is like 2010. So then I, I made friends with someone, my friend, Neil, great guy. He knew about Joe and he put me on to Joel Salatin. And then I just started reading books and reading books and reading books. So the entire time I was in the Navy I was just dreaming about getting out and starting huh. my farm. Huh. And uh, so then to kind of book in that, I got out of the Navy, moved to New York City, not farming, of course, got a bachelor's degree in political science because I thought I wanted to be like a government worker, like a, a contractor, that type of thing. Because that's kind of the dream that they sell you. Yeah. Become quickly disillusioned with living in the city and the city life like it was a lot of fun and I I loved it but there's a program here in the Hudson Valley called Heroic Food Mm -hmm. and I found them online I said look I just I got to get out of the city so I graduated and they hooked me up with a dairy farm in Poughkeepsie New York Sprout Creek Farm is the name and that's was my first professional farm job and I fell in love and that was kind Mm -hmm. of It's kind of been it since then.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about the program? So
0: heroic food. I don't know how operational they are now. I think COVID may have put a quite of a damper on them. I know they host events, but essentially it is for veterans who want to learn how to farm, farm training, farm job placement, kind of a mentorship program, and they set me up with the job there at Sprout Creek, and then. You know, here in the Hudson Valley in New York, it, it's really great in this area. They have uh, what do they call them? Field days that they do. Yep. They have farm ops, which is through Cornell. So they set you up all of these resources. I did the Young Farmers Conference down at Stone Barns in mm-hmm. 2018, I think. So yeah, they set you up all those opportunities. I didn't have to pay, I don't think I paid for any of them, maybe oh, transportation.
3: Cool. Yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, so all these different people I've met got the opportunity to speak with everybody from like Elliot Coleman to Joel Salatin. Like I've I've met tons of people and most of them were through that program or an extension of that program.
2: This is awesome. I will make sure that that goes in the show notes. I'm a little more familiar with
1: the homegrown by heroes label, like the Vermont veteran farmer coalition, but I didn't realize about like other programs that are overtly connecting veterans with farms to just even get started, which is, how do we know how to get started if, if <laughs> like we don't stumble into something, right? Or we, you know, that I feel like so often we just stumble into things instead of like there being actual people there in a support network, which is am- amazing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know who's in charge. Maybe there's a Lisa Baker, maybe Lisa Baker or Ryan O'Sullivan. Those are, those were my contacts. It's been a couple of years, but yeah, really good people here in the Hudson Valley.
2: Oh, that's fantastic.
1: Oh man. So when you when you were in the Navy and thinking about the farm that you wanted to to do or have or be on, like what did that look like versus what you what you have
2: done so far?
0: Yeah, that was a very it was kind of a blank canvas with some stick drawings on it. Uh-huh. I knew I knew that I wanted to have ruminants mm-hmm. and wanted to do kind of the Joel Salton style farming. Joel Salatin, Alan Savory, those that type of farm compared to what I do now, it's quite a bit different. And I I will say, I'll preface that with where I'm at now. I'm transitioning this farm. So they've been a little bit more conventional, but let's, I will go with my ideal farm. We'll we'll put it that way. I didn't really understand the nuances of farming. I didn't understand that how hard it would be. I didn't understand uh, that it's, you can't really make, the type of money that you think that you can make, I guess, not, and I don't like money. we will probably get into that. I'm not a big, I'm not financially motivated. Right. Right. And what I wanted at that time really isn't possible. It's too expensive to own land here. I don't want to lease, you know, I'm, I'm a very, I'm a zealot. I'm a very idealistic ideological person. And, and and I'm okay with saying that like, that doesn't, it doesn't bother me. So I live in the realm of ideas and trying things and, and really pushing the envelope to see where where it can take us. Yep. And and so that's I don't know, that's a non-answer, but it's an answer.
1: <laughs> it is both. You're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just thinking about the challenges of leasing and the financial challenges of buying. Is that is that what led you into being a farm manager, which where you'd have a little bit of of both?
2: Um,
0: Yes, I would say, yeah. Yes. yes. So I used the, um, uh, I don't know, three years ago or so. So I've worked on several farms here in the Hudson Valley, I think four or five now. And, you know, slowly working my way up. And my wife and I tried a lease program through it's New York Farmland Finder and or Hudson Valley Farmland Finder. Mm -hmm. And just so happened, it's the same person that I later started a farm with. That's how I met that, that individual. And I would use his name, but I didn't get permission. So we won't do that. Yeah. So we tried leasing and I was working full-time at another farm. And my wife was working part-time at a little homestead and then trying to run our farm full-time. It just, it wasn't possible. I was putting in 60 hours a week, especially in the summer, I was making hay. And so we tried the lease option and it just, we couldn't make it work. We couldn't make money. And it also was right at the beginning of the pandemic. So everything kind of shut down. It wasn't really means of marketing the things that we had. I mean, everyone thinks that, you know, everyone was looking for a local food at that time and they kind of were, but like, how were you going to get that message out? You didn't have farmers markets like you couldn't go meet people. And that. yeah, so I kind of decided then I was like, I can't really do my own thing. I want to create an ecosystem. Like, I want to create more than just the leasing option is great for some people, but I don't want to use someone else's land, make it really great and beautiful. Kind of like Troy was talking about doing, Troy Bishop on, on that one podcast, just for that person to take that land and then you know, charge a higher price for someone else to lease it. I, I don't want to do that. I, w- I want to create my own ecosystem with my ideas. And for me to be able to do that, the best way I have found to do it is to manage someone else's property that gives me some leeway. And then maybe, you know, five, 10 years down the road, I can implement the things I learned and the mistakes that I made, which are a plenty, and then put that to practice on my own land.
2: So what's your vision for the place that
0: you're on? Yeah. So here at Anchorage Romney's, it's been a pure bread Romney sheep operation for about 30 years Mm -hmm. Um, and I I didn't know much about purebred I come from basically a couple mutt flocks of just hair sheep and you know like mixtures. they've been a little more conventional I would say they they fed grain in the past and which is fine you know I I don't judge other people for what they've done Um, I just prefer not to so hopefully weaning them off of grain slowly creating some civil pasture here creating an environment an ecosystem that allows the sheep to fully express themselves without sacrificing breed standard fleece standards meat standards for the very few lambs or the market sheep that we may have so i want to i, I want to marry the romney breed standards on a grass fed operation using civil pasture um, and still providing the highest quality breeding stock that we can yeah so that that's kind of the vision long-term goal oh yeah
1: yeah yeah so how does your wife interface with this are you guys doing your own separate
2: thing
0: so yeah my wife and i we met at the dairy farm at sprout creek in 2018
2: uh-huh. yeah
0: yeah we got married on the same farm about a year and a half later that's awesome. so Wonderful. Yeah. And uh, she kind of got out of farming. She loves it. You know, we would both farm probably for the rest of our lives in a perfect world, but uh, she is getting a degree. She's actually working on her second bachelor's. So she goes to UAlbany. So she doesn't really have much to do with the farm. You know, she listens to me and my hardships and complaints and all that good stuff. And like this past week, the sheep flock here has been right outside the door. So as she's doing her work, she works from home right now. She can look out and see the sheep grazing and, and hanging out. So that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. So she's really, really supportive and she's been she's been great. But yeah, she doesn't do much with the farm. We have a little garden, but that's it. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: I happen to be married to a non-farmer and he really likes living on a farm. Yeah.
2: <laughs> he likes looking at yeah, my the wife window. loves it. Yeah. <laughs>
0: but yeah, and my wife would help me this morning. Yeah. I got into a bit of a the part I'm trying to graze. So I like to use the peripheral land, the land that hasn't really been used yet. And everyone says, ah, sheep can't eat this. Sheep can't eat that. And, you know, they won't do this or do that. I don't, the beauty of not coming from a farming background, not having a, a degree in farming is I don't play by any of the rules. Like I don't listen to any of the rules. I don't care about the rules. And, you know, for a while, Google, like, Is milkweed poisonous? Is this poisonous or this everything's poisonous? I'm like, well, I just watched my flock decimate milkweed and they're great. So yeah, I don't know if I trust that or not. So yeah, I just I don't I don't like playing by the rules. Anyway, so I got into a situation trying to graze this peripheral area. And my wife is like, Do you need help? Do you like, do you want me to come help you? And and she would have, and she loves it. But you know, often I I try not to bother her, let her let her hang out and, and do her thing.
2: Speaking to that, you know, what do they
1: eat or not eat piece many years ago. In fact, this was, this was like the late 2000s. Gristravaganza. Kathy Both was a speaker at that. I don't know if you ever read any of the articles in On Pasture. Um, dot com. Highly recommend them, but she has had, she's the editor of that. But, but prior to that, she did a great deal of research and work on teaching livestock to eat weeds and and sort of she just opened with if it's green and growing it's probably nutritious and let the animal you know and just watch the animals and let and give them a, a give them a buffet to choose from don't force them to eat anything ever and they will figure out what is good for them And I love that. And I've just sort of, personally, I've just sort of taken that and said, I've had so many people tell me that, that, you know, this is horrible and that's horrible for animals and context, you know, (laughs) like giving the animals choice. And if it truly is a plant that has a a high toxin level, then they will take a bite of it. And then they will not bite, then they will not take another bite of it. They, as long as there's other stuff to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fresh perspective, I think is is a nice thing
0: to have. It's <laughs> great. And you know, I have a lot of influences. Like I said, I listen to well, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And <laughs> I I think maybe six months ago I found Fred Provenza. And that guy is like, he's amazing.
1: He is um, amazing. Oh my gosh. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So yeah. I'm in the middle of reading his book, Nourishment currently. And so I I take from him and then I I listen to hunting podcasts. And if you listen to hunting podcasts, they'll tell you that they observe elk or moose doing this particular behavior. I'm like, wait a second. I watched uh, sheep do that. Like that's, that's odd. So, and then I can kind of merge those two ideas together and be like, well, if they're pawing at the ground and then eating the dirt, maybe there's something there that they're looking for. Even though I provide minerals and and other things that they need, they're not always getting everything that they need. So, yeah, yeah, I I just, I think, I try to think laterally. I guess I don't try to, and I'm a bit of a, I don't know, I just think outside the box, I think. Not intentionally, it just kind of comes natural.
2: Yeah. No, I, I get that. I totally get that. So where do you see farming going? As,
1: as a person, is a person who's on the newer side of that, like, what do you think are some of the trends that
2: are coming that are going to help other people be able to do this too?
0: So I have a two-folded answer here. I have a pessimistic and an optimistic answer. Um, I'll go with a pessimistic. That way, I can close with something happy. So my pessimistic answer is: it's just going to get more mechanized. It's going to get More greenwashed. It's going to get more consolidated. That's that's my fear. I hope that I'm wrong, but as efficiency in the conventional space gets even better, I really fear that the little guy like me, like I just want to feed my local community, my neighbor, feed them, clothe them. I'm not trying to feed America. You know, I hear farmers say that. I, I that's not my goal and i think as long as farmers have that mentality of feeding america like that's huge that's that's so big like if we if we are focused on that scale the only way really to do that is by machinery you know and we're going to mechanize everything so i hope that that's not what happens but that's that's one of my fears now the more optimistic view is that the more we learn about ecology environment and ecosystems the more, I'm going to say like permaculture design type farming will come into play. Uh, Let's say civil pasturing, rotational grazing, people that would normally not be so keen on doing or implementing those systems are starting to slowly come into the fray. And Joel Salatin is, is assisting that, pushing for that. White Oak Pastures, Walt Harris, is that his name? Or Will Harris? I can't remember. Will, yep. Well, yeah, Will it's Harris. Like Will he's Harris. helping them because he, yeah. Yeah, he talks like them. And he can kind of rub elbows with them and he can show them why it works. Or Gabe Brown. There's a whole host of these guys. And so my hopes are that the next generation, the younger people, even younger than me, I'm 35, are becoming, and I don't, you don't even have to call it environmentally conscious. But maybe they're understanding biological systems a little bit better mm-hmm. and less reliant on a machine, less reliant on a lab to create meat or food because it's not food. And I'm hoping that we start realizing that the only way to feed America is to feed your neighbor. And so if I have dairy cows or, and, and goats and I'm making milk and cheese You're going to hear me talk a lot about dairy. I really love dairy. But you you do pasture poultry. And I'm like, well, I would like a chicken a week. And you would love some delicious cheese. And then our neighbor has some alpacas. And, you know, they knit sweaters or something. Like, you know, we can do that kind of within the community, within the neighborhood. That is, that's the only way to fix a lot of our issues, I think. It keeps the money local because right now we're draining we're brain draining and financially draining the rural right. parts of this country. And so all of those things is what I would like to see.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I love, I love the, some of the folks that I've, I've had the fortune to,
1: to speak to you on the podcast. It's been really interesting to have folks from the city be moving out back out to the country and sort of I'm wondering, is that, thing that's just going to be increasingly happening is is that it's the drain is not going to be from the country to the city it's going to be from the city to the country um in this group of people and which which i think is kind of exciting to me (laughs) just like you know vermont same same kind of thing i mean we've 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 had you know lost kids to this to the city um you know throughout our history quite a lot and um and there's a lot of conversation about that. Like, how do we, you know, what do we do? We're losing our kids. And yet at the, at the same time, you know, some of those kids come back because they, they like the things that rural places bring. So do you think that
2: there's a place for technology in this new ecologically minded approach to farming?
0: Yes. Yes. I I don't really fear technology like this whole AI revolution. Um, I'm a bit of a Luddite myself, you know, but I don't really fear it because I think it can be used as a tool. You know, let's say I do have a little 20 acre farm and I'm growing vegetables. And before I had to hire someone to manage my website, I had to hire someone to update it and, you know, all the all the things that come with that. Now, if you can just learn how to do that or tell AI what you want to do, then you don't have to pay for those services. Now, maybe that's why it weighs off and maybe I'm a little naive, but I think that there is some some ways that technology can make farmers' lives easier, more productive. So I think that there are, now, of course, there are some fears, but no one, there's not going to be a robot that's going to be rotationally grazing, especially not where I'm at. Like, there's not a flat part of land here. That's never (laughs) going to happen. Um, And so, but for someone like me, maybe if you can develop something in AI, some tech thing to help me better organize my rotationally grazing, my paddocks. But well, for me, that's different because I never use the exact same rotation twice. Like I never, ever, for any reason, I don't like it. Um, So. Yeah, I I don't fear it. I think that there's a place for it. And I think there will be a place for it.
2: Troy was was showing me the automatic fence lifter um, that they were going to demonstrate. And
1: which I I feel like that works way better for cattle than it would for sheep, for example. However, I mean, the the principle is certainly still there. And I, I do wonder about some relatively comparatively simple technologies that we don't always use in grazing that, you know, we could just have a ding in a bell and set it up to move something three paddocks a day without, without, you know, having to go out ourselves. Um, I think that's kind of interesting. Like, I think there's been a tension between, you know, are we going to be all biodiversity and Luddite and, or are we going to all be on tractors all the time with a GPS that just runs the tractor? Like, <laughs> what's the middle part of that? Like, I feel like there is a middle part of that somewhere.
0: I agree. There is a middle yeah. ground. I mean, someone like like here, I don't have, I have two tractors. One really, really old tractor that just has like a little forklift on it. And then a newer one for bush hogging. But I don't have a UTV. Everything is manpowered. I'm the only employee. Yeah, I do everything, I, and I walk, and I carry all of my supplies and my hose and everything. Yeah. So, I I am anti-machine. You know, I'm anti-oil. I don't like that stuff. I don't know anything about machines. Like, there's another one. Like, I wasn't trained how to work on tractors. Like, I now I know. Like, I can yeah. grease and get a tractor running. But so that helps me because I don't want to deal with that. I, I yeah. don't like it. Then it's just another expense. It's another thing. But
1: I wanted to take a quick break to thank our underwriter for this episode, the Northeast Pasture Consortium. The Northeast Pasture Consortium is an alliance of farmers, researchers, service providers, and policymakers across the 12 Northeast states focused on issues of importance to pasture based livestock farms. The consortium connects folks from Maine to West Virginia around grazing topics and helps set USDA and university research priorities across the region. Visit grazingguide.net to learn more about our work and join the mailing list to hear about upcoming events and farmer scholarships.
0: You know, there are some tech that you can use. Like, is, is there a way that I could do whatever this thing is more efficiently? And like, could you tell me, like, is there a system maybe going forward that could help me figure that out? But I graze so much in in the peripheral area and in the forest, even like you can't you can't use an automatic GPS guided (laughs) contraction because there's tree branches that fall. There's like sticks and vines that grow over things like you can't do that or weed eating fence rows. Like it's just you're always going to have to do
2: that. No, that's part of the nature of 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 things changing every day right (laughs) that's that's grazing in general
1: no two days are the same in theory Mm -hmm. yeah so in the in the course of time that you've been doing this do you have like have you hit a rock bottom day or a worse day or you're like what have i decided to do maybe (laughs) maybe i'll go back to the city
0: (laughs) oh i i think i've had several several Anytime that I have health issues with my animals, mm-hmm. that uh, that is really, really, really challenging. So I think it was about a year ago. Now it was in the fall. So let's say 10 months ago. Everybody loves to tell you these wonderful ideas about putting pigs in the woods. You can do all these great things. Pigs in the woods, pigs in the woods, pigs in the woods, which is great. That's, that is correct. You can't do pigs in the woods. So I was doing pigs in the woods slash pasture moving them every six to nine days somewhere around in there yeah five to ten you know depending on the thing and then suddenly i get them into this one chunk of the woods and two of them get sick and die i'm like what like pigs are supposed to be in the woods like that's what everyone says and i'm moving them often like it's not bad like white snake root white snake root no one ever talks about it killed abe lincoln's mother It's very very toxic, and there was a large patch of it, and the pigs got into it, and two of them died. And that was one of the hardest days. That was really 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 difficult. Mm -hmm. I think we had thirteen pigs, and (laughs) you know this is a new farm, like we had just started, like six months before that. So that was pretty rough. And that, I mean, it didn't make me rethink my decision, but that was pretty hard. The one that made me. Really reconsider farming at all, and whether I was cut out to do it was the first farm job I had. We had dairy goats and dairy cattle, and I was primarily in in charge of the goats, but as an apprentice. So, like me and the other person was in charge, and they got a really bad bout of coccidiosis. So bad, it was probably coccidiosis coupled with other parasites that we lost. I don't know the number. Let's say forty out of 150 goat kids died, and I probably handled 30 of the 40. Oh. And they just we couldn't get ahead of it. We tried yeah. had a vet come out. It was lungworm, coccidiosis. Like there was a whole host of things. Yeah. That that was a lot of long nights, you know, trying to nurse back these goats to health, and it was tough. And I had only been farming. Less than a year. Um, so understanding that life death cycle, seeing these goats that I spent, I did, you know, six days a week, two milkings a day, you know, and then cared for their kids. You know, we were on watch. You have to be up at four a.m. midnight. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, boom, we lose, you know, a third of them. That that was hard. I didn't know it took me maybe about a month to overcome that. Okay, like I I really just wanted to quit. I didn't. I'm I'm glad I didn't. But that was that was tough.
3: What got
2: you through that?
0: I I don't know. I'm stubborn. I'm bullheaded. I, I think mostly. <laughs> yeah, I, I really don't know. It was it was hard. It was challenging. Um it was probably trust in the systems that were in place and that it was. I don't uh, probably naively believing that it just comes with the territory at that time. That's kind of what I thought, and because uh, that's what everyone else is telling me. It would it would be years later until I learned that that's not true. It doesn't have to be that way. Right. But at the time, I, I think naivete really really helped.
2: Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I have found very challenging is that people will
1: just assume that sheep die. And I'm like, well, there's certain times of the year where things are a little tougher than other times. You know, lambing is not always a perfect thing. And late summer is not always a perfect thing. But, you know, they also don't just die. <laughs> I mean, occasionally they do just die. But but that sort of, you know, how do we still have a flock at all if they just die? It's not quite true. And I just, I got to the point where I was I was like,
2: had to come to. It's not a place of comfort, but it's like a not surprised, but it's problem solving.
1: How can we change it next time? Sort of place to just what everybody
2: tells you isn't what always happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: yeah. One of the first farm managers I worked with, he he was a sheep farmer, like on his on his own on the side, and he always warned me, "Never get sheep. Never get sheep. They wake up looking for a reason to die." That's what he would tell me. I'm like, what? Like, there's no way. So years later, let's say three years later, I ended up buying my own sheep. And they were good breeding stock. They were Katahdin Dorper crosses. And my wife and I, we immediately would get them in as lambs, no grain, give them some uh, alfalfa pellets and some hay just to kind of slowly get them going. And then we just start putting them in the woods. You know, they were just recently winged. They didn't know anything, they didn't know what to eat, they didn't know how to eat, but we did it, and they eventually figured it out. and we never had any issues. I know the person that has them now, a friend of mine, and they're still doing great. They're still thriving. Yeah. They've never been dewormed, <laughs> They've never been given any vaccinations, nothing. And, and they, for the first six months of their life, had the worst forage on the planet. Like we were always putting them in the shade. So if there's and using netting so like we developed this c system with the netting so that we never had to create a lane or anything for them so some days it would just be mostly forage from tree branches or something that we would cut down and they were fine they didn't yeah. care and they never knew none of them died they were all happy and healthy and yeah i have really come to the point where i just i don't believe any of the conventional wisdom it's you know not up. most of yeah. the stuff it's not needed we don't need it
1: yeah but to find mentors along the way, right? So what is the balance of using experience versus the everybody says? Like what is but how's that worked out for you and how have you approached it?
2: Yeah,
0: I would love to sit here and say that I've had three or four fantastic mentors that have just led me along the way and I've gleaned knowledge and it's just been wonderful. That's been the opposite of what's happened. Oh. I I would say that I've not had an in-person mentor at all. Mm-hmm. No one that I can call and talk to. There's just those people don't really exist for what I am wanting to do. Mm-hmm. You know, if I wanted to do what everyone else is doing here, I could I'm sure I could have found someone. And you know, people love to give you advice and they love to help in their little in their own unique ways. And I really have appreciated that. But I have used the internet, YouTube, reading i read way too many different books so mostly youtube and and books so if i had an issue with whatever it is you know how do i want to do something google it and i'll find a youtube video so that's how i found uh, alan savory um greg judy gabe brown justin rhodes the homesteader and all these different people are always cycling through these different ideas you know mark shepherd steve Gabriel. So then I just try to marry like my intuition and my thoughts and and mimic what these other people are doing with my own flair. Um, So it's been a lot of trial and error. I've made a lot of mistakes. Like I will admit that, but uh, yeah, so not all advice is wrong. I don't want Mm -hmm. to say
3: that
0: and, and things that you can Google are true, but in my experience, like if you were to Google right now, let's use the milkweed example again, is milkweed poisonous,
2: right?
0: You'll find a dozen articles from homesteaders to universities telling you that sheep will only eat that if they're giving nothing else to eat. And if they eat it, they will die. That might be true in a continuous grazing system after six months of grazing and they haven't moved and they're starving. That might be true. But for someone doing what I'm doing, that's not true at all.
2: Yeah. And when animals are starving, that's the last time they should have something that
1: has any toxin in it, which is almost everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah, Because those toxins, yeah, they're not able to handle the toxins that are, that are there. Lettuce is toxic. Mm -hmm. I mean, lettuce has toxins in it. So come on, everything Mm -hmm. has toxins in it. Um, Yeah. I'm with you listening to Fred Provenza. So Fred Provenza is who Kathy both worked with on the weeds work and listening to Fred and Kathy and the way that they talk about this, it allowed me to give up a lot of like my need for knowledge or control. And it put a lot more faith into the animals and, and setting things up in such a way that the animals can get the feedback They can make the choices, they can get the feedback, they can get the results, they can do that. I just set up the situation where they get that. And boy, that just took a whole lot of like pressure off me. (laughs) Just feel like that. it was like oh well if you're not eating it i'm not going to leave you there to make you eat it and uh, because probably you're not eating it for a reason either you've got enough of that nutrient or to, or or too much of that toxin or there's some other reason that you're not eating it and so let's just move on to the next paddock we'll come back
0: <laughs> i love that. i think it's great and yeah i don't we don't want to science the heck out of everything. Like that's right. kind of my philosophy. Right. You know, I measure out my paddocks. I have a planometer, I think is the app name. Yeah. And you know, I stick to it, but if it's a tenth larger or smaller, I'm not really that worried about it. I I want them to be happy. Like that's all I care about. Be happy and healthy, no disease, you know, no problems. And if you don't eat, let's say you only eat 40% of what's in the paddock. I don't care. Yeah. I really don't care i'm not playing by anybody else's rules you know i just want whatever whatever you whatever the sheepness of the sheep is whatever's going to make you happy that's what i want And i got some girls I, I walk into the paddock and i call them pig noses they got these wide romney noses that are solid yeah, black yeah, yeah. and they're breathing they're sniffing me and and then they just eat whatever's around them i have videos of them eating black swallow or, they're not supposed to do that right and and, and milkweed and you know, wild grape, and you know, they're just eating all this stuff. And it's hard to get someone to understand when you're farming like this, that once you once you start doing this and you, and you quit trying to be the sheepdog and you start being the shepherd, right? So you're not bullying the animal anymore. You're, mm-hmm. you're, you're leading them to where you wanna go or where they maybe want to go, that it takes a lot of stress off of you, it takes a lot of stress off the animal, and then you realize that whenever you open up a new paddock, let's say if it's a brambly paddock, they rarely go for the grass first. They want like that little bit of browse and then they'll eventually get to the grass. And that's what maybe they'll eat 80%. But just like Fred talks about, they, they kind of nibble. They go a little bit here and a little bit there. And it's just a, it's a wonderful, beautiful thing. And it's so easy once you start doing it.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I agree. So as, a, so as a farm manager, and I mean, you're describing the vision and the way that you're, you're
1: approaching this, like, what's that been like negotiating
2: or, or, or how, how much freedom do you feel that you have to express, you know, your approach as a manager?
0: Yeah, I think that's a very, very challenging question, you know, and I, I'll start off by that. It's not what I expected. It's really been a challenge for me. As you can tell, I'm long-winded, so I have a lot of these ideas, and so in these conversations with the farm owner, I'm just spitting out like a like a like a little machine, like all these different ideas. And you can imagine someone that's older and hasn't really been well versed in this stuff, or doesn't realize everything that you're saying and how they interconnect. Because of course, in my head, they all interconnect because I've been reading and doing this stuff. But I I forget often that not everyone has the exact same experience and they don't reach the exact same conclusions that I've reached.
3: Right.
0: So that has been a back and forth and it's been me taking a couple steps back and saying, Oh, I need to, I need to gain your trust. I need to, I don't want to say prove, but for lack of a better, I need to prove that these things do work the way that I'm claiming that they work.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And then I have to be willing to accept that they're, there has been a way that things have been done that have, quote unquote, worked for the past 20 or 30 years that maybe we're not comfortable changing just yet.
3: Yeah.
0: And that is okay. That is okay. And like, I'll, I'll give an easy example is feeding grain. Mm-hmm. I don't like grain and I can go on a bit of a tangent. I hate soy and I hate corn, but I don't want it. I don't like to eat it myself. So I can make some people angry really, really quick with that little phrase. (laughs) So not feeding it to my animals is, is really, really important to me. Like they're ruminants. I I want a short stocky cow or sheep or goat with a big old fat belly. That's what I want. That's what I'm looking for. And, but if you're doing purebred, like we're doing now, and you are sending animals to shows for eight shows, or you're selling breeding stock, that's not necessarily what those people are looking for. And it took me, I would say, about a month here, banging my head against the wall, for me to realize that, like, this isn't just mine. Like, I have to incorporate the goals, missions of the farm, and what has been done historically with what my kind of dream, my ideological view of the world is. And, it, you know, it's been slowly me stepping back and not being so bullheaded and attacking every problem. I have that not so desirable trait of just plowing through everything and just wanting to do it all today. Um, (laughs) The farm managers or the owners are great. Like they're just great people. They've worked with me so well. We've had these meetings and they're really apt to incorporate my ideas. And I'm using parts of the farm that haven't really been used in the past 20 years and some of those peripheral areas. And I'm I am cutting down some paths where I can put them in the woods a little bit. You know that I always want the animals to have shade, like 100 percent of the year. And so we will slowly wean them off of grain. You know mm-hmm. potentially, mm-hmm. like that. That's kind of that connection to the grain issue, and then see where it goes. So it's kind of like running a little bit of an experiment. Uh, experiment. And they're allowing me to try this idea and see how well it works. Not not this year, but you know next year going forward, and then see if we can keep that breed standard that strong Romney breed standard and and even have a market lamb that is reaching the desired weight at the time and and then I am less bullish on some of my other ideas right so it's been some give and take but I will I I've been humbled by this by this job and I I really had to take a step back and, and reflect on why am I doing this? Like, am I doing it because I want to be here? Am I doing it just to run my own personal experiments and, and just be very vain and, and too idealistic? No, I'm not doing that. I mean, it's part of my job and I want to, I want to incorporate their values and mine.
3: Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm.
0: it's been, it's been really challenging, but I'm doing better now. So.
2: That just sounds like a really steep learning curve in general about
0: how to put it all together. Yeah, that too. I mean,
2: yeah.
0: yeah Yeah. And being a first-time farm manager, you don't realize everything that goes into it. Right, Um, right, right. You know, there's the business side. There's keeping up with the emails. There's making sure that the checkbook is balanced. Like, all of these things. Like, I have to do all of that? Oh, yeah. And you have to make sure the lawn gets mowed. And like, all of these different things, I, I just didn't. I thought it would just be easy. Yeah. Naively, I thought it would be easy.
1: Oh my goodness! And
0: it's been challenging.
1: Well, and who's doing the marketing? Are you responsible for marketing as well, or or do the owners do that piece while you are managing the more physical pieces?
0: Yeah. So we don't really have a marketing aspect. Anything that would be sold, we don't have a direct to consumer line. Gotcha. It would be some contacts that we've developed over the past several years that wanted to buy. We do have a website. And if people want to buy a Ram or some use or something like that, you know, that kind of goes through both of us, me and, mm-hmm. and one of the owners, but, but in terms of like a true marketing strategy, we don't really have one. There's just a lot of venues that they've used in the past that we continue to use.
2: Yep. Well, and related
1: to okay, that, I thinking breeding stock and marketing is very different than, than doing a,
2: a direct to consumer to fill the freezer sort of arrangement. And how do you see how do you see meeting the breed
1: standard as you know i mean there's there's a genetic component to that and there's breeding plans but then there's also like lambing times and there's and then there's the n- nutritional side and the grazing management side of that like how how do you see that um as being as being different than what you have already been doing and and how are you approaching it differently
0: it's, this is like the million dollar question. This is what keeps me up at night. Like, this oh, is no. what is crazy.
1: <laughs> I don't want to no, keep you um, up at night with this question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> this is most of my spare time. This is what I think about.
1: Yeah. So
0: historically speaking, the last farm I had and Dorper crosses yeah. for sheep. And then for yeah. cows, I had Belted Galloways. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's just me and I have my own animals, I can do whatever I want. I'm looking for good mothers that need to land without any input at all I'm looking for mostly twins and I'm looking for good browsers slash grazers I want that short stocky big gut and I'm looking for docility I want them to be calm if I walk into a paddock with them to move them and they run away like you're gone the way that I operate is like a shepherd like even now these sheep they barely know me but they've develop such a trust in me i can walk into a new paddock without creating a lane and they follow me yeah. like yeah. that is what i want yeah. and so how that compares to kind of with the breeding standard of the romneys trying to keep all of that the same is is really something i don't really know yet because we have natural colored we have recessive carriers and we have all white with like a luster in there and they're wool, and so then whenever you're breeding, you want to keep those traits, so you want to keep the white ram, or the two white rams, with the, the white use, and then the recessive, with the recessive, and then the natural color, with the naturals, so then, like, so this fall, whenever I start breeding, I'm going to have all of these different groups moving around the farm, like three different groups, in the past, I would just have one group, one maybe group. two,
2: right, right, Yeah
0: maybe two. And th- so this is really going to be challenging for me. I'm trying to figure out like, what is the best route to take? Because if I have just a 100% grass fed operation, it doesn't really matter the color. You know, I don't really care if she's a hair sheep. she meets all those other characteristics. It doesn't matter if she has a flat line on her back, you know, for, for the Romney breed, or she has an all black nose, which, you know, the Romney breed should have. So those types of things, that's really, really challenging. And the owner is such a good guy, and he's really been helping me. He's been in this for a long time. So he's helping me understand and kind of say, look, we need these trait characteristics to uphold the standard of the breed. And here are the ways that we've done it in in the past. Here's how you might could go about it in the future. So we, we're trying to incorporate all of those. And it's, it's interesting. I like it a lot. That, that part is really fun to me. But there's also, and maybe, maybe this isn't true for all purebreds, but it seems to me that there's this, how do I want to be, how do I want to say this? In the show ring and with purebred animals going to 4-H and stuff, there's a lot of this only works this one way. You can only have a show sheep that was born in, let's say, end of January, early February, given grain until they're sold, and then went to the show. And, you know, it has to be this amount of weight and has to look like this. I don't believe that. Like, I think you can be 100% grass fed and still meet all of those other criteria. Maybe not the show ring, right? Because I'm not going to be lambing in January or February. Right, right, right. Yeah. Like that's too early.
1: It's its own own thing. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But I, I just, I'm not buying that other people are saying that you can only do this, this particular way. I'm just not buying it. And maybe I'll be proved wrong. I've been wrong before, but my goal is to maybe take the Romney breed in a different direction. Maybe a grass fed direction, have really good genetics. I think maybe New Zealand or I think is New Zealand has done some of that work and, and see what I can do to add to the breed.
2: Yeah. It's a whole different challenge. It's a whole different challenge when you get into the, the genetic side of it.
0: Yeah, Farming is tough. Farming is really, really yeah. tough. Ranching, however you want to describe it. I don't know. I, I have thoughts on you know where farming is going in the future the accessibility to people that are first time farmers. I, I want people to want to get into farming for the right reasons. And I want existing farmers to continue their ventures and, and their love for agriculture for the right reasons. I don't like the financial incentive that keeps getting tossed around, You know, whether people put regenerative on their label and they have they don't even know what the word means. They just put it on there because now that's the new buzzword. So I really, I care about the people. I care about the farmers. That's why I don't judge people for doing whatever they're doing. But, you know, I also want consumers to know what they're buying. I want transparency. I want everyone to feel like there's a place for them in the agricultural world, whether that's a consumer looking for, I don't care if you're a vegan, if you're looking for good, high quality produce. Right. Like, I want you to know where you're getting that produce from and why and how it got there.
3: Yeah.
0: Or if it's dairy, like, if you're buying dairy from a farm, you've been buying it there for six, seven years. You should know that only 40% of that dairy is being produced at the farm. They're buying in another 60% and not telling you.
3: Mm,
0: Like, that drives me crazy. And that bothers me. So, I want. Yeah, I just want a, a beautiful, symbiotic, neighborly, community-based farming world, and and I want people to get into it for the right reasons and and do the thing. And yeah, I love it. It's a it's a fun space to be in, and there's a lot of opportunities to grow.
2: Well, there really there really are, and I think that this generation of folks starting from scratch or coming with
1: all different kinds of ideas and ways to do it, and that's that's a really neat way to grow. Um what do you think about the just the community aspects of being a small farm these you know starting out as a, as a small farm in in a community what what is what is it bringing to
2: that community to have a new farm startup
0: Yeah I think it it brings well for one a new perspective mm. it brings it brings the opportunity for for new connections, for new ways of doing things. So not only for the neighborly farmer, but also, you know, if you're if you're a suburban kid and, and you don't know where an egg comes from, right? You don't know. Like it's really nice to have that new small diversified farm. Maybe they only have 40 acres, but they have a couple goats and some chickens. To be able to have this little nugget of, of knowledge that you can go there and you can visit that farm and you can buy these eggs and you can ask the farmer like you know as a little kid loves to do like where does this chick where does this egg come from right and they can be yeah, like right. oh you want to know and farmers love to tell you what they're doing like they love it yeah like maybe they don't always want to interact with the public like that's kind of the joke about farmers but the, no one's going to turn down an eight-year-old kid that says where does an egg come from and then you can take that kid on a little journey a little adventure to where that comes from. And if you're more outgoing like I am, like I I want to bring people into the farm all the time. Like the last one worked out, I had this young couple that would come and do a couple of field days with me. And I did it for free, like I don't want money. Like just let me let me show you what I'm doing and why. To better connect you. Like they were from a the city, they didn't understand how farms worked. So I brought them in and they were curious and I could teach them why I'm doing the things that I'm doing and why is it interesting.
3: Right.
0: It's such a beautiful thing like At the time I come up with a system where I had the pigs in the woods. Okay, so let me take a step back. So I had the cows rotating the cows through I what I was developing as a civil pasture.
3: Okay.
0: So I was developing a civil pasture and I was feeding round bells supplementally, right? To get some some of Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. biomass and seeds and everything down into the into the woods, into the civil pasture area. Because this is late fall. And then I said, you know what? If I'm doing this, Why don't I bring the pigs in after the cows to break up the round bells, right? Because otherwise you have all these round bells just matted down and you always end up getting thistles and everything else in there. So let me do that. Let's see how that works. And then if it works really well, then I can bring the chickens after the pigs, you know, kind of spread all this stuff around. So I did that. And then I showed these people and they were just mesmerized.
2: Uh It's
0: like a whole little ecosystem there. And, And I love that part of farming.
2: Me too. There's
0: like yeah. aha moments. Just, yeah. 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 And I'm always thinking of ideas and, and ways of doing things like that's, you know, I'm sure I'm not the only one to think of that, right? It's not novel, but it's fun. And whenever you think of it, you're like, oh my God, I have, I've never read that. Like I haven't <laughs> seen that.
3: It's totally like that, true. that's.
0: Yeah. It's a fun thing to think about. Like I have this crazy idea of pelletizing tree fodder so Uh like if you have mulberry trees or poplar trees or any tree leaf that has really high protein content if you could pelletize that like you do alfalfa pellets you know and then use that let's say you have a grass-fed dairy and you want to give them alfalfa pellets like why couldn't you do like a 50 50 split like you know tree leaves and then alfalfa pellets it sounds like a good idea
2: that's a fascinating idea huh
0: yeah
2: I know folks who are pelletizing sheep wool for fertilizer, but the tree fodder for, for feed is a totally new, huh? See, look at this, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're just, have you ever read the book Range by David Epstein?
0: You're kidding me. I just finished that book about three weeks ago.
1: Isn't that an amazing book?
2: Yes.
0: I just, loved it. I want to tell everyone about
2: it. Right? <laughs> it's it's those the
1: generalists of the world and i feel like who is a better generalist than than a grazing farmer or or rancher like somebody who's doing livestock who's managing them in a grazing system is going to be looking at the ecosystem and looking at the nutrition and looking at the animal health and looking at the community and looking at all of these things and that that's how we make those leaps because somebody who's only doing one thing isn't gonna make a leap outside, but the people who are looking at all of these different aspects, social science, hard science, chemistry, biology, all of that mechanism, like we're the people to make the leaps. So there we go. So I can't wait for your, like for a pelletized tree fodder business to come up because somebody heard this because you thought about it and somebody just was like, boop, let's just do that. That's a brilliant idea.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Hope so. I hope they do. And like, I love giving out information. Like I have all these ideas and I, I don't operate where, where, you know, I think a lot of people operate like, Oh, I have this idea. It probably won't work. So I won't pursue it. I'm, I, I'm not like that. And that's kind of yeah. like the beauty of being a dreamer. I can say, if I have this idea, how can it work? Like yeah. if it were to work, yeah. what would be the method to make it work? And that's, yeah. that's what gets me really, really excited. And if it doesn't work, who cares? Cause I'm that's still doing right. these other things that work but it's fun. It's exciting.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Cameron. It was delightful to get to know you and meet you and talk to
1: you. And oh my gosh. Um, thank
3: you, thank I you really appreciate so it. much for your I,
1: time.
0: Yeah. I appreciate the platform. I hope someone gleaned something like just a little nugget of this crazy guy rambling for an hour. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And more than just one somebody, I'm sure.
2: (laughs) Quite a few. Um,
1: Yeah. Amazing.
2: That would be great.
0: Really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks again to Cameron for sharing his story. I really enjoyed getting to know him and I really look forward to meeting him in person someday. I hope that we can make that happen at some point. Um, Some of the topics that were raised today that I just wanted to highlight, uh, one is, is owning versus leasing. You know, both have risks, both have pros and cons, both have benefits. You know, one of the big issues in a lease situation is... That lack of ownership may mean lack of control. It might mean that the work of a few seasons to improve the land might result in that landowner taking the land back themselves to manage it. They can sell it. They can rent it because it's higher quality land. They can rent it at a higher price to another farmer. But it also means that there's room for experimentation and making mistakes on land that you aren't paying the full cost of through a mortgage and the taxes and all those associated costs. Leasing can be a more profitable model and a more accessible model for someone who's not in a position to buy or just simply doesn't want to be tied down to a single piece of property. I have seen both models be successful and I've seen both models be unsuccessful. I don't have an opinion about which is right or wrong. It's really about what your goals are and how the model fits with where you are in life and where you're going. You could own now and lease later. You could lease now and own later. It doesn't matter. What really matters is where that model fits what you are looking for. So another topic is... um, not playing by the rules. <laughs> Cameron said this. I love this comment. And he, and he kind of tossed it out there. But this is a theme that I hear often as I talk to folks on the show, folks who, who don't grow up in farming don't know what's off limits. They don't necessarily know what the rules are. So they don't know what's not okay to ask about or to do or to try. I think that that speaks to the the value of fresh ideas from new directions. And it speaks to the range of experience and expertise that people new to farming bring from their previous lives. So some of the rules really are rules, like animals without water will get stressed and die, for example. But how we interpret the rules and how we implement those rules, well, there's a lot of middle ground there. Um, There's a farmer that I used to work with in Vermont who um, is a dairy farmer, and he did not... He, after a period of time, multiple years and building his pastures up and getting things to a certain point, he got to the point where he stopped putting water out in his pastures for his cows. Of course, he had water in the barn. Cows absolutely need to have water or they will die like all of us. But he worked with he grazed taller. He had grass that was full of water. He was not over grazing them. He wasn't grazing them short. He was moving them every 12 hours. He was coming back to the barn to drink twice a day uh, and to be milked twice a day. And so he, he changed, he didn't change the fundamental rules, but what he did was he did things differently. And that's the takeaway. The takeaway should not be remove water from your animals, but the takeaway that I always took from his, his example is we don't always have to do it the way that everybody else has always done it. I have just always appreciated that um, perspective. Um, and then farming or ranching for the right reasons was another thing that, that sort of came up as a theme. And I really appreciated that Cameron brought this up and I, and I agree and in fact, it's one of the reasons that I started this podcast at all um, not because I can decide for somebody else what the right reasons are. I do think that many people want to be part of a solution to the many challenges that we're experiencing now you know from from decline of, in community to lack of good food to fixing climate change or adapting to it, whichever I do also think that farming can be profitable, and I don't think th- and i and i I don't think that we should not try to be profitable. Um, And I do think the farms and ranches can be run as businesses. I don't think personally that those things are mutually exclusive. I think we can do all those things, but I don't think that that, Those are the only reasons that people should be farming and want to farm. And what I hope to see is that people come into farming or ranching because of their own right reasons, not because it's a current fad and they want to jump on a regenerative bandwagon or because they watch somebody with a 247,000 person Instagram following. That's a true person out farming right now that I see. It's because they truly want to do it for their own right reasons. I think there are... External reasons to do a thing and internal reasons to do a thing. And the internal reasons, whatever they are for each person, those are the right reasons, I think. So, what parts of this conversation resonated with you? Reach out with your comments, your questions at choosingtofarm.com. Check the show notes for links to Cameron's contact information, as well as if you're in the market for Romney's, um, purebred Romney's. Uh, Anchorage Romney's link is there as well, um, as well as the two books that we talked about. There's direct links to those books if you would like to check them out. So, as always, if you'd like to support the show, please share it with a friend, consider supporting our Patreon, or leave a public review. They really help and they're free. And I just got one from a non farming listener. And thank you so much. That was great this is not just for those of us who are actively farming right now. These are for those of us who love stories about farmers and our journeys. And thank you for hearing that. So in other podcast news, as I mentioned earlier, we've been uh, awarded some grant funding to help tell more stories across new England and across the Northeast region between Maine and West Virginia over the next couple of years. It is such an honor to be able to share those stories out in the world, your stories out in the world. Um, Farmer to Farmer is how we learn, and it's how we build a community, and that's what I hope we're doing together, one episode at a time. So if you know a first-generation farmer or rancher, or you are one yourself, and you want to share your story, send me an email or an Instagram message. I would love to hear from you. Thanks, everyone. I'll see you next time with a new conversation, and here's my husband, Chris Sargent, to play us out. Have a great day.